Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Thursday, May the 12th. We've got Laura May Lindo on the show, NDP MPP. We talk about the abuse Jugmeet Singh received while in Peterborough, Ontario. We'll have that conversation. And Sabrina Nanji, speaking of the NDP, with some scoopage on Andrea Horvath and her potential future with the Ontario New Democrats. Lots coming up on the show. We're glad you're with us. Toronto Today begins now. I won't listen to this audio after the show today. It's about the sixth time I've heard it now, and it gets worse to me every time thinking of what enrages people this much. And we all get mad. We all can talk about politics. We all can get furious about this, that, and the other thing. You can't do this. This is uh, what happened to Jugmeet Singh when he was leaving a uh, a campaign event on Tuesday. Okay, it's utterly indefensible, utterly indefensible. And we cannot say, well, this isn't us. If it's some of us at the very minimum, I want to bring on uh, NDP MPP for Kitchener Center, Laura May Lindo. It's great to have you on. Thanks very much for making the time uh, for our audience. I know it's been uh, everything's busy up until June 2nd. You hear that audio. I know you saw that video. Um, It's gross. There's no other way to describe it. Yeah, it's actually becoming all too common. And I think, as you were saying just before you introduced me, um, we often think that it's happening somewhere else and we rely on this narrative that people are parachuted in. But the reality is um, there's an increase of hate towards politicians um, as they are nav- as we're navigating this pandemic. Um, and we've got to figure out a way to sort of call the people in or call our people in because there's no way that... Um, community members don't know other people in their networks that are that are showing up and um, behaving in this way uh, because of how frustrated they are. My producer, Jason Chapman, made the point, and I've seen it from living in the States, is that mayors of, uh, of big cities, New York, uh, Chicago, Lori Lightfoot has this in Chicago, have these huge security details. Um, we don't want to be that, but it is almost getting to the point where I'd feel more reassured. I remember, you might remember this too, there was video of, of Jugmeet walking in Ottawa with a larger uh, threatening man just walking with him and following him and nobody was doing anything. Like We've, we've got to be conscious of these scenarios. Yeah, most definitely. And we also have other examples of what's happening to um, people that are running to be become elected officials. Um, My colleague in Cambridge, for instance, Marjorie Knight, um, woke up, I think it was yesterday morning, to one of her signs being defaced. Mm -hmm. They had cut out her face and they had put some uh, racist language on it as a Black candidate. um, It's very difficult to push to have more diverse voices, women at the table, um, Black folks at the table, when this is part of what people think we should just sort of expect to happen. Um, so I, I don't know that security details um, are definitely the answer, but I do know that there is a rise of hate across this province and we need leadership that's going to address that in tangible ways. Laura Melindo is our guest on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. 
Um, you're doing it again, and and I, I I'm almost just so impressed by anybody who's who's running for public office. I think it's harder now than it was 20, 30 years ago. Uh, there's more, you know. The, there's the social media aspect. There's there's people digging through garbage in essence. Look, we always are looking for things, and politics is about gaining edges. Of course it is. But you must come across people all the time that say, I I don't know how you do it. I wouldn't do it myself. So it tells people the passion. Your community is still very very there that you want to do it again. Yeah. Yeah, it's very true. And people do ask. I think part of the the difference for my foray into politics is that I was doing anti-racist work um, before I put my name on a ballot. And so I have often found myself in scenarios that are really hard. Um, and I've developed some skills to be able to help people to navigate through that and build a stronger, more inclusive community. So my name is back on the ballot for Kitchener Center. It's uh, great to have our next guest on. Uh, she's the founder of QPobserver.ca. You can go there, get all the latest Ontario politics news and no better time. Uh, this is real meat and potatoes time over the next three and a half weeks. In fact, I think we're 21 days out today uh, from voting day for the Ontario provincial election. She is Sabrina Nanji. Sabrina, it's great to have you on as always. How are you? Morning, Greg. Feeling uh, a little bit of a, a NDP drama hangover, but uh, happy to dig into that with you this morning. I don't know what I don't know what the medication is uh, uh, for that. I don't know what the uh, uh, whether that's more in the back, uh, more more a headache, a <laughs> migraine. Um, we'll see. But yes, you did have uh, your uh, your article uh, getting a lot of tongues wagging, a lot of people talking about it. Titled "New Dems in Disarray." Um, give us the crux of of what you were able to source out. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, let me tell you, like my phone and inbox has been blowing up uh, ever since, you know, some dippers aren't very happy with me. Uh, understandably, you know, we're smack dab in the middle of uh, campaign emotions are running high. And this story uh, that came out in QB Observer could be actually pretty damaging to their leader, but uh, it, it could also, you know, go the other way. So essentially, there's uh, this organized push among the grassroots New Democrats uh you know, called the 901 Club. And the idea is that if longtime NDP leader Andrea Horvath can't deliver on June 2nd, you know, that is take the, the premier's seat, uh, the minute the polls close at 9.01 p.m., uh, the, the, the knives are going to be out. Uh, there's going to be pressure on her to step aside. Uh, uh, you know, this is her fourth kick at the can. Uh, the polls lately have been putting her either in third place or, or neck and neck with the liberals who were, you know, just completely walloped in 2018. Uh, and there's a lot of concerns about how the campaign is being run and the strategy. And that's that's falling to Horvath's beat. Uh, you know, she does tend to score, uh, you know, high popularity marks within her own caucus. They had a, they have regular leadership reviews. They had one earlier this year and she got a, a resounding endorsement with 85%. But there's been a lot of drama with the nomination contests, mm -hmm. uh, the handling of some controversial candidates. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, though, uh, you know, as a reporter, if people are coming to me with concerns, I vet them and, and report what I can. So at the risk of scooping myself, Greg, I can kind of tease, a, a, you know, a, a follow up story that I'm working on right now with some higher profile NDP uh, folks, you know, including some candidates telling me that that they're signing on to this 901 club. Uh, and that they, they the feeling is that they just can't win with with Horvath at the helm. But yeah, a lot of people aren't willing to have this conversation right now because we're like I said, we're in the middle of the campaign and this, you know, this isn't a great look for Horvath. No. And it's it's I, I think politics has changed. I was a little kid and, and the NDP's federal leader was was Ed Broadbent. And I want to say he ran in five elections. This will be Andrea Horvath's fourth. But, you know, and I know whether um, that sense of immediacy has changed. 
not many people even get a fourth um, kick at it, let alone a, a fifth kick at it. I mean, she first ran against Tim Hudak and Dalton McGinty. That tells you how long ago it was. Yeah. And, you know, she, she's also pretty popular with the, the public, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she when when pollsters ask the electorate, you know, who would make best premier right now, Doug Ford is, is winning that question. But Andrew Horvath is, is in second place, which, you know, she tends to pull higher than her own party. She's a, a competent communicator, uh, but she's kind of having a hard time, uh, you know, getting her message to stick with voters. And there, there's probably a lot of factors in there. I don't know what the actual reason is, but, uh, you know, there, there's a lot at play here. I, I think if anyone was watching the Northern debate this week, it sort of felt Who like wasn't? Ford versus Del Duca. Yeah. <laughs> 1, 1 p.m. on a Tuesday <laughs> afternoon. Yeah. I mean, I, I had the popcorn out. Yes, yes, but, yes. She, she had a hard time, you know, getting in her jabs uh, when she could. And and the North is where the NDP, at least, you know, with the current uh, representation, they, they dominate there. And she certainly got the loudest cheers. But there's some people who still feel like they can't win with, with Andrea at the helm. Uh, in 2018, that was a change election. You know, one of the, the best uh, in recent memory, uh, you know, showings for the NDP. They, they won 40 seats. They formed official opposition. But there are a lot of people even now who feel like they could have done better. They could have held Doug Ford and the conservatives to a minority, you know, with the liberals being decimated as they were and the NDP picking up a lot of their seats that, that they could have done a better job. And of course, the liberal brand is still going strong in Ontario. I think that also kind of is playing into the, the polling numbers we've seen with the liberals actually doing pretty well and the uh, relatively unknown leader in Stephen Del Duca, but you know campaigns mm. matter, and and it's still early days yet. So uh, I guess we're going to have to see how this all shakes out. But I think it, you're right; it's rare that leaders get a fifth uh, chance at this. With deference to Mike Schreiner, look, in essence, we have a three-party system in Ontario. We have a five-party system that's obviously got regionality in Quebec federally. Um, but it's this is a it is a gift for Doug Ford right now, Sabrina, that uh, the new the new Democrats and the Liberals are polling very similarly. And I'll tell people what I mean and and flesh that out. In 18, the second and third place uh, uh, parties got 33 percent and obviously win and the liberals got smucked. They got 19 percent in 14. uh, Almost the same story. 31 and 23 in 11 for adult McGinty minority. 35 for Tim Hudak. He almost won. And 22. It's that's how you want it to be if you're if you're you're one of the two parties. But this is great news for Doug Ford. He may have Sabrina. He may have a lower percentage of votes. He had 40 and a half percent of support in 2018. He may have a lower percent by three percent even and have more seats based on the vote splitting that the NDP and liberals might do, which is why they're going at each other a little bit. Del Duca and Horvath. Yeah, of course. I mean, the more compelling race right now is the one for second place. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, that works in favor for Doug Ford and the conservatives and really, you know, the, the status quo. Uh, and that's kind of what we're seeing in the polls. You know, the conservatives, sometimes they're down a couple points, sometimes they're up lately, but uh, they're still sitting pretty and feeling pretty confident. Of course, like I said, anything could change. It's We're still 21 days out. A lot could happen in that time. But uh, I, I think, again, this speaks to a very strong liberal brand. Uh, and, and there's a lot of similar policies from the liberals and the NDP. And so I think, you know, uh, so-called strategic voting is going to 
play a, uh, a role mm. here. You know, Andrea Horvath kind of came out right at the start of the campaign saying uh, the NDP is the, the only party, you know, best positioned to beat Doug Ford and the Conservatives. That's kind of something you want to say for, uh, you know, just days before the election day, your, your get out the vote push. But at the end of the day, this could kind of galvanize um, both both voters, you know, Liberal and NDP voters. If you're sitting at home, mm. you know, hearing the Conservatives are on track to win this, they're on track to get a majority that might rally Liberal and NDP voters uh, to get out and actually cast their ballots, you know, do some canvassing, put up a lawn sign. And so it it really, you know, it it sort of feels like it still could be anybody's Mm. game. But uh, as a former Tory Premier Bill Davis, I'm I'm going to paraphrase, but he he said boring works. And so I think that's kind of the message we're seeing from the Conservatives. There wasn't much new in their budget slash pre-election platform. Uh, And uh, I think that, you know, having... um, uh, po- policies, you know, similar policies from the NDP and the Liberals that uh, that's kind of splitting the the more progressive, let's say, vote. I only got 90 seconds here, but I'm dying to know. Sabrina Nanji, by the way, our guest, uh, QPobserver.ca is where you can go to get her great stuff and her scoops leading into the June 2nd election. Um, when Stephen Del Duca announced the vaccine mandate for uh, for kids, he and I have talked about that on the show before, but he wants people uh, vaccinated to go to school. Here's what I spotted, and I want to know if you spotted it too. I'm I see a lot of prospective liberal MPPs and the ones that are that already have the gig, and I didn't see many people retweeting it. I didn't see many people talking about it, and I've heard, and you're more connected than I am. I've heard that some liberal MPPs were really hopeful. They got in hoping this wouldn't be the case that the goalposts have moved in. Nathan Stahl's a brilliant guy. He Dr. Nathan Stahl might win that seat where he's running in Toronto. Not a word about it. Not a word about it. Do you feel like this is an un, potentially an unpopular thing internally that Stephen Del Duca probably should have dropped? Yeah, I think you're right about um, Stahl in, in St. Paul's in Toronto. That's actually where I live. You know, it's a, uh, and, and from what I'm hearing just from even neighbors anecdotally is that uh, they're, they're liberal fans, but this is a, let's say bold uh, promise. I'll put it that mm-hmm. way from, from the uh, Del Duca and, and the liberals. Uh, this is a visceral issue. There's no doubt. Uh, but I think that now with the vaccine numbers that we're seeing, uh, you know, relatively high rates, even among young people, of course, you know, this has the power to, uh, you know, maybe change change people's decision at the at the ballot box. But I think that that's kind of what the liberals are, are looking for right now. Um, they are, uh, you know, maybe not gunning for official opposition, but of course that kind of seems like they will be in contention for that position. And so uh, that that's kind of, you know, when you make a bold promise like that, that can only work in your favor. No doubt it got people talking and that's what, where the liberals have been winning. You know, everyone's talking about buck a ride. Everyone's talking, you know, for better or worse about this vaccine mandate for students. And so that's kind of where the liberals have uh, been more successful than the NDP. They're getting us talking about it. I might even go back to grade 13. I love those. I love those four months uh, back in uh, 1990. I had a good time. Um, oh, no. Count me out. <laughs> yeah, it was a heavy workload. I will say that a lot of pressure uh, with those exams. Uh, we'll keep reading your stuff and we'll talk next week. Sabrina, thanks so much. Thanks, Greg. It feels like Ages ago, but last year, um, when May comes, right, universities finished up exams, everything was online at the end for 2020, 2021, and then vaccines became uh, available, applicable for university students, for faculty as well. And I remember doing radio in June of last summer, starting to see stories in the States about the vaccines being mandated for faculty, for professors. And we thought, 
I think rightly so then. Students, same thing. That that would be a good thing. That would maybe be essential. And I remember Seneca College. We talked to the president of Seneca a couple of times. And they were the first to step out. And then it, it was a little bit like a domino effect. It's a little bit like restrictions being lifted at times. Um, but a lot of universities got on board. Some were quicker than others. And some students obviously challenged um, those university vaccine mandates. Well, there just has been a win for McMaster University on judicial review over students that were removed from uh, from classes, um, not just in person, but online for refusing the COVID-19 vaccine. George Avram uh, litigated that case uh, for McMaster on the university side of things. He's a partner at Baker and McKenzie Law Firm. George, thank you very much for making the time for me. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. Do I kind of have that, that most of that uh, most of that lead up right? This is this is stemming from last fall, um, and the university mandate went into effect in October of 2021. Uh, you have most of it right. The, <laughs> the, the all universities had a vaccine mandate as of the end of August, uh, and that's through some public health directions that were given at the end of August. So all Ontario universities had. Uh, a, a mandate to have a, a, a vaccine policy in place. And most started off until they got organized and gave students and faculty and others a chance to get fully vaccinated. Uh, and remember at the time it's two doses uh, until mid-October. Between September and mid-October, there were some testing options available until the vaccines were fully available to students and faculty and staff. Uh, so it, it, you're, you're almost there. Um, there were just some nuances that the, the court also addressed in its decision. And obviously there'd be um, that eight weeks is probably a waiting period between first and second doses. If someone gets the process started and gets their first vaccine in August, they obviously can't get their second until closer to October. That's right. Um, four students. So Mac took four students from their programs uh, and did all four students have the same uh, reason, explanation as to why they wouldn't get vaccinated it was religious and, and conscience grounds? Uh, that's right. Four, so there were three, two PhD students, one MBA student, and one undergraduate student that put in a, an application for an exemption. So there was an entire process laid out, uh, and the court commented candidly quite positively about the university's process for dealing with these exemptions particularly since they expected hundreds of exemption requests. So these students put in their exemption requests on creed-based grounds and some conscious grounds. Having reviewed those exemption requests, the university determined that they didn't meet the standards necessary to be granted an exemption. Now, the students claimed that, uh, that, that Mac was in the wrong, the university was in the wrong, because they didn't know they would get, they would get unregistered from the school. The court denoted, we, even if you had known about that, they didn't find there was validation that those students would have got vaccinated had they known about the consequences. Is that also accurate? Well, I think there's there's some of that was in dispute because the policy that came out does say students could be unenrolled. So that was that was clear right in the policy. A few of the students clearly identified in their in their materials to the university and their submissions to the university that they shouldn't be unenrolled because they're not vaccinated. So you had some evidence uh, that was pretty clear in the court notes of this mm. that they were aware, but they also said, well, what difference would it have made 
even if you knew you were going to be unenrolled based on what you're saying to this court and what you said to the university during the the process, you weren't going to get vaccinated in any of it. It's a it's a really interesting um you know, set of circumstances now. And and when we had Omicron flood over us in November and December, I think a lot of people, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say the goalposts move, but I think we we wonder where it goes now. I see in April uh, that Mac had updated. And, and when the province dropped some restrictions, Mac decided, well, in February, we're going to maintain a vaccine mandate. Uh, we're going to keep it for for those public areas, theaters, gyms and whatnot. And then the last the last news article I could find was that they're going to pause vaccine and mask requirements from May 1st on. What can you tell the audience about where Max policy stands now with regard to requirements? Yeah, so so just a step back. Right. The 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 university uh, dismissed these four students application in October. And you remember in October we were dealing with Delta. Yeah. Yeah. And Delta was a different beast than Omicron. I think everybody understood yep. that and everybody understood it at the time. So what the applicants did was they challenged the decisions on a judicial review. And what that means is the court has to take the evidence as it existed in October. Okay, They weren't entitled to look at floating evidence between October and when the, when the decision was made in March. Once new information came out with Omicron, and, and most universities, I think all but one university, have paused the requirement for vaccine mandates as of May 1. And what that means, it's a bit nuanced, but at least in Max's case, if you are currently a student, faculty, or staff member, uh, you don't need to be vaccinated for this pause period. That being said, new hires, new students, new faculty, will have to be vaccinated. And, and largely, this is because nobody has a clue where this mm. virus is going and what comes out in September. So to be fair to everybody out there, they wanted to give everybody notice that this may still come back. They may still need to turn the switch back on, but right now nobody has a clue. And if everybody anybody tells you they do, they're not being truthful to you. Yeah, yeah. The, the the distinction is interesting because Max on Max own website, the news story um, that's generated from uh, McMaster is McMaster to pause vaccine and mask requirements from May 1st. But listening to you, you're saying a, a freshman coming in from grade 12 who accepts an offer of admission to Mac must be vaccinated to go to school in September. That's right. Um, that brings into how many doses do they need? Well, it's still it's still the pause. It's still a paused vaccine. So the policy still says it's two doses. Greg. And uh, yeah, that's the interesting part right there, isn't it? Because I think there's a lot of debate. Um, and, you know, we had Stephen Del Duke on the show last week who talked about the vaccine for elementary school and, and, and high school. Um, there might be parents that say my kid, my 18 year old has had one vaccine, had had Omicron over or, or has Omicron even right now. And there's always that debate, right, about about acquired and natural immunity. I mean, we've obviously had it flood through all of our households, all of our family. And I think that's going to be the interesting one about it is is whether that gets you. You may see a similar challenge for someone saying, I've got one shot and I've had it. Uh, my own doctor's telling me not to get that second shot. That's going to be the interesting factor here. Oh, sure. I mean, and nobody's foreclosing 
um, you know, a, a doctor expert evidence saying that depending on antibody mm. case, you'll remember that there's a case out of the, out of the U S where a faculty member, uh, wouldn't get vaccinated. There was a mandatory vaccine policy wouldn't get max, uh, vaccinated because he did have COVID and he had expert evidence that his antibody levels were so high that if he actually received vaccines, it would be dangerous to him. So it all yeah. depends on the evidence and the specific evidence in each case. There's there's no doubt about it. I mean, nobody can mm-hmm. foreclose opportunities and uh, and and have a closed mind about what is or is not available as an exemption. George Avram uh, is a partner at Baker McKenzie. This is a fascinating chat. Um, I, I hope we get to do this again. Uh, like you said, a lot of moving parts. And uh, this is now that time when when kids are accepting offers uh, to go to school. We hope it's as normal a fall like it was for you and me when we would have gone to school. Uh, but I appreciate you coming on and, and giving us your insight. Thank you for having me. And I share your sentiments about uh, having normalcy with three kids in the house and all at <laughs> university age. I, I can assure you I want normalcy in schools. I, I hear it. Well, let's chat again. Thanks so much for the time, George. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Toronto Today. We're back with a live show tomorrow. You can hear it on 640toronto.com or on the Radio Player Canada app beginning at 5.30 a.m. We'll know whether the Leafs are off to Game 7 against the Lightning or right off to the second round for the first time in 18 seasons. Join us on Friday.